So we ended last week looking at how um, Jesus is a better sacrifice than the Old Testament system had. And I know I've gone on and on and on every week about how Jesus is better than some aspect of Jewish, um, the Jewish law. Um, but what he says here this morning, I want to emphasize in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25, is that since, um, verse 16 is actually already said, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds. I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So God has chosen to not only overlook, but to put away our sin for us. And we have to just accept that by faith. He says, now where there is remission of these, speaking of sins and lawless deeds, there's no longer an offering for sin. Where there is no sin, there is no need for an offering for sin. The offering is what makes us right with God. But where there is no sin, where there is no lawless deed, because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, there's no more need for an offering. Now to us, maybe that doesn't really say that much. But to the Jewish believer at that time, if they wanted to go worship, they always had to bring something. They always had to lead an animal. They always had to be feeding an animal to prepare to make a sacrifice for their sins. The work was never finished. It was always exhausting. So where there is no more guilt, where there is no more lawless deeds or sins, there's a lot of free time given to you, right? There's no more of this need for the sacrificial system. So what are we to do with this time? Well, he knew, even in first century Christianity, that when we have free time, what do we do with it? We fill it. We find something to put in the schedule. Hey, a, a day off work for the week? Let's do 82 things because I got five free minutes. That's, that's our nature, right? And so he wants to instruct those that are hearing these words, you've been set free from having to make sacrifices. So here's what you should do with that time. And he goes into the lettuce verses. If you don't like salad, here's a lettuce, some sets of lettuce verses. He says, let us, therefore, brethren, verse 19, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, no longer to make a sacrifice first, but we can just walk in, waltz in, as if there was never a problem. He says, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw near. You couldn't draw near without a sacrifice. But since a sacrifice has already been made, let us take advantage of the opportunity we have to walk straight in. Let us draw near with a true heart. So is this let us draw near to a system? Is this let us draw near to religion? Is this let us draw near to a church building? No, it's let us draw near to God. It's all been made, this sacrifice, so that we can draw near to Him with sincere hearts. Not afraid, not ashamed, not burdened with guilt, but now able to walk in and say, here I am, Lord, I want to spend time with you. And for us that have never had to be a part of that sacrificial system, we don't realize how good we got it. We just don't. But he says, because this has all been done, paid for, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says not only have our sins been forgiven, but then we are sprinkled continually by the blood of Christ. And in the te- New Testament or the Old Testament, that was they would sprinkle the utensils that were used in worship so that they were set apart, they were holy, they were ready to be used in the presence of God. And so we have this blood of Christ. We were just praying about it this morning because the worship team and I have been taking communion before service so that we don't have to stop. You guys can take communion while we're playing music. But we prayed about this this morning because Jesus' blood is perfect and holy and it's able to positionally sign, seal, and deliver us for heaven. We are perfect in the sight of God because we have Jesus' blood applied to our lives. But did you know that blood, that same blood, is then available to us for the cleansing daily of stuff. The sins that we continue to commit. And I don't know about you guys, but I still sin. I have this flesh. I have this desires that, that are not of the Spirit of God. And I have to deal with those sins still. And so how do I do that? I can continually come back and say, pleading, Lord, your blood is sufficient to cleanse me from my practical day-by-day sin. Not just to set me for heaven, but also to cleanse me daily, practically. And so it's available to us. So we, we draw near, and that's, that's something that we benefit from. We, we continually get to be purified by living water. Then in verse 23, he says, And having a high priest over the house of God, excuse me, that's 21, 23, he says, Then also let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So let us hold fast. He says, let us draw near, and then let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What is our hope? It's Christ. What is our confession? When you think of the word confession, what do you think of? Maybe confessing sin? Maybe confessing unworthiness? But do you ever spend time using your lips and your mouth, the voice God's given you, to confess that your hope is in Christ alone? Maybe somebody high-fives you for doing something really awesome. At those moments, we have the opportunity to say, well, the only thing good that comes from my life is because my hope is in Christ. I've been set free. I don't have to earn anybody's favor. I'm just trying to please the one who saved me. We confess our hope to other people. Not only is it a witness and a testimony to non-believers that while they really do believe, because otherwise they probably feel foolish for saying that, but also we get to confess it to one another that our hope is in Christ. And so our confession is important. He says, without wavering, for he who promised can be trusted. God can be trusted. He's faithful. So he says, let us draw near, let us hold fast or anchor ourselves to this hope, and let us consider each other purposefully. So in verse 24 and 25, he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more than as the day as we see the day approaching of Christ's return. And so we need to gather together regularly to remind one another of the hope that we have, to consider one another. To, we no longer have to bring an animal. We no longer have to bring so much of a grain that we've grown in our field. We no longer have to burn anything or prepare anything. We can just come 
because the sacrifice was provided for us. So what can we bring as an offering? We no longer have to. Now we get to. So what we can bring is what God's shown us throughout the week. We can bring what we've been learning from God on our own. We bring that to offer to one another as a way to stir each other up. I don't know about you guys, but I can easily throughout the week kind of forget where my hope is. And I think it's because most of the time, I don't know about you guys, I don't spend my time surrounded by Christians. I don't spend my time surrounded by people that are wanting to listen to Jesus music. I don't spend my time focusing on the kingdom of God. I do paperwork and crunch numbers and answer emails. And, you know, maybe your job looks different, but that sucks the Jesus out of me. So for me, we go to church uh, as many times as we can. We drive to Farmington, and we, or I stay in Farmington on Wednesdays when they have Wednesday night service because I need reminded of the promises that God's made to me, and I need to hear that other people that believe in Jesus who have anchored their lives to him are actually flourishing in the middle of their drudgery, in the middle of their uh, time to make the donuts. You know, in the middle of there, answering the 852nd email about the same thing. You know, just doing what we do to praise Him is worship. But getting together and encouraging each other is also worship. We spur one another on by just sharing, here's what God did this week. You know, and for me, it stirs me up. Jesse hit a deer this week. And you know what he said? I'm just thankful that God kept it from going through the windshield because it could have i'm driving a you know what is it a, a firebird those things don't take deer well and they don't make brush guards for them either you know and so he he just basically his testimony was yeah i hit a deer and it's my only car and i kind of need headlights it's the darkest time of the year but it didn't go through the windshield god took care of me i don't respond to hitting deer that way I confess to you that many times I kind of have a little idol out of my Jeepster. So when I drive that thing to Farmington and I hear stories about people hitting deer, I'm like, Lord, please don't let me hit the deer. I want to keep this car for a long time. Mine would do better. You're right. Right. Thank you. See? See? Jesse didn't respond that way right away. I got to hear the cleaned up Facebook version. You know? I hit a deer and praise God it didn't break the windshield. But the reality is, he struggles too. That inspires me. Because if you guys just hear me teach every week and you assume that I'm just always firing on all cylinders, that's not encouraging. That's discouraging. Like, man, I wish I, I don't have that. I guess I need to cover up my deal. It's like, nope, I'm just as messed up as you guys are. Now, I, I know that sounds like a backhanded compliment, but I mean... In reality, we all recognize a hope by now that I don't have it all together. And so we have, because of what Jesus has done, look at this. It says, let us, let us hold fast. Let us draw near. Let us consider each other. Christianity is not a me, Lone Ranger faith. Christianity is about us. No doubt we are saved by grace through faith. It says that you have been saved by grace through faith in Ephesians. But in Ephesians chapter 5, it also uses this, these terms. Let us, together. We're stronger together. Do you know Jesus compares us to sheep? 
Sheep are not safe by themselves. Sheep are not safe together, by the way. They're not safe together unless they are all protected by the shepherd. They, they can't defend themselves. They get slightly scared. They fall over. Sometimes they fall over and can't get up. They, they just, they're, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but it's, it's slightly insulting that he compares us to sheep. But, but it shouldn't be. He's saying you can't do anything on your own unless you trust me. So he leads us beside still waters. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's the one that leads us to greener pastures. He's the one that says, hey, winter's coming. Let's go to the low ground. Hey, summer's coming. Let's go to the high ground. You know, whatever it might be, he leads us exactly where we need to be. And so he's done it all so that we can all do these things together. So I took way too long to go through that. But verse 26, he continues on. And he talks about one of the reasons why we need each other. Verse 26 says, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, that there actually no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And what we know is from Exodus chapter um, 21, that if, if there was actually a time where you would know the truth and you would willfully sin against God, that God doesn't have a sacrifice prescribed for that. That we, we willfully sin against God, there's no sacrifice there. There's no prescribed this many ephahs of flour and this much, you know, but we, there's no sacrifice. And, and so I wanted to compare these two verses. Verse 18 has already said where there is a removal of sin, there's no longer an offering for sin. But conversely, he says in verse 26, but if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So there's no sacrifice needed if we're in Christ, but if we're in Christ and then we willfully sin anyway, there's no sacrifice for that. And so um, we have to recognize that we've had our sin removed. He says, but when we sin willfully, verse 27, there's a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And that's kind of speaking to the wrath of God and the fury of God that he's a consuming fire. And to those who worship him, he consumes them with his love. And, and no longer do you see a person, but you see a person that's in Christ and everything that they do is about him. Yet to those who are continuing in habitual sin, meaning that, not meaning you messed up one time, but those that say, you know what, I don't care anymore, I'm just going to do what I'll do. What the word of God says is that, that we, we will be consumed by him. That his presence alone and his holiness will actually consume us. So verse 28 says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. They would stone you to death. There would be no mercy shown. There would be sin purged from amongst the ranks. In verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will there be, excuse me, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed a common thing, and have insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. That's quoting from, the, from Deuteronomy. God does chasten and discipline his own. 
And, and so he's not speaking about the losing of salvation. What he's talking about is losing of reward. For we who are in Christ, we're sealed for heaven, and yet we can get there with fiery robes, barely escaping judgment. But he says that when we, as Christians, sin willfully, we become the most miserable people on earth. No joy, no excitement about the Lord, but judgment and this fear and this thing that kind of encapsulates us and makes us no longer, we want to put a bushel over us. We don't even want to talk about Christ because we know that we're in sin. And so we have these things, the flesh, the world, and the devil that are deceitful, and they cause us to kind of look inward instead of upward. And so the believer who, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself, kind of distracted this morning. I'm kind of, my mind's all over the place, but we already talked about how that there's a progression when it comes to wandering from the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, it talks about the believer who drifts from the word. It, he gets distracted from it. He's got other things going on. He stops, to, he stops kind of focusing on it. And what happens as believers is we have grace, and so we're not saved by how many times we read our Bible. We're not saved by how many times we go to church. Those are all get-tos. They're not have-tos. There's no checklist that says, if you did these three things a day for every day of your life, then you get to come into heaven. It just doesn't work that way. But as a result of that, we start to kind of think that those things aren't really that important. And so the believer who drifts from the word is spoken of in chapter 2 will soon start to doubt the word in chapter 3 and 4. And soon he or she will become dull to the word because when you stop listening to God's voice, you stop noticing what he's speaking to you throughout your day. And we become lazy listeners and then becoming lazy when it comes to spiritual life. And over time, we start to despise the word. Because when you don't hear its instruction, you stop obeying it. And then when you stop obeying it, when you start to hear it, you start to feel like you're getting nagged. And then you go, I don't want to hear it anymore. And when we despise the word, it leads to us willfully sinning. And maybe you're here today and, and you've been in, in seasons of that where you willfully reject the counsel of God. The problem with that is that it leaves a wake of destruction in the lives of those that surround you. Uh, God saves us from our sin, but many times when our, we are disobedient, there are still consequences that play out in our lives. Uh, a good example of that is King David. King David was a, a godly man, a man after God's own heart. And yet in his life, there are some glaring sins that not only produced destruction in his life, but in the lives of those that he was in care of. Uh, David sinned with Bathsheba. He didn't go out to war as he normally did, and he got caught in a moment of weakness, and he saw Bathsheba, he invited her over, and the rest played out like, you know, uh, <laughs> what is the name of soap opera, you know? It played out, and then as a result of that, he went a year without repenting until finally God sent a prophet to him to call him out on his sin, and then he responded, and, he, and, and then he writes Psalm 51. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. Forgive me, cleanse me, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But then what happens is that Samuel says, you've repented and this is good. The child's not going to live. So there was a consequence. 
But he said also, the sword will not depart from your family. And if you look at the family of David, in Solomon's time, it was all good. But then Solomon's son, the kingdom split into two tribes and ten. And, and Judah was the predominant area. But the leaders of the nation of Judah end up killing each other. I mean, there's this war that goes on with family feud, except with swords and death. And there's no laughing. And so David, because of his willful sin, knowing the truth and not obeying it, he ends up creating this wake of generation after generation of sinful leaders. And so we need to be aware of this. And the only thing that's able to keep us from this type of life that leaves a wake of sin and death is actually just submission and surrender to the word of God. And so he, he humbled himself. And I want to point out that David, when he recognized he was in sin, he knew that there was no sacrifice for his willful sin, that God wouldn't receive a sacrifice. And so when he's praying in Psalm 51, he says, he says, instead, he says, I offer you my humble and my contrite, or what that means is broken heart. No longer just a sorrow over getting caught for sinning, but a sorrow over sin that causes you to turn around and go the other way. He says, my heart is broken, and I'm sorry, Lord, for sinning. And guess what? God receives that. Even in the Old Testament, God receives a broken heart over sin. He didn't have to make a sacrifice. And so he says there in verse, thir uh, for verse 30, for we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, he points out the fact that there will be a judgment on God's people. Now, when we think about judgment, we think about them, you know, those who are outside of Christ. There is a judgment for those who are outside of Christ. It's called the white throne judgment. It's written about in Corinthians. But there is also, for the believer, an there is judgment. There is a what they call a bema seat judgment, the mercy seat. So we get to approach God based on what Christ has done for us, but then he judges the, the fruit of our lives. He judges our laboring. He judges the works that were produced by our faith or lack of. And he casts them aside. There are wood, hay, and stubble, and those are the things that burn up in the consuming fire. And there are things that are precious, like silver and gold. And Peter writes about this. He says, our faith, when it is fully mature, is, is more precious than silver and gold. It's, it's something that is to the glory of God. And so he talks about our works of faith and our works of unfaith or our, our lack of faith that are going to be burned up. And so he says it's, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so this is why we need each other. We need each other for accountability. And if there's one thing that is lacking in our church, I believe, and in many churches, it's accountability because for all intents and purposes, we don't really see each other outside of Sunday mornings. And some of this is unavoidable. We're so busy with our lives. But I think some of it is we need to make time to be with other believers throughout the week. Let me ask you, you know, as far as discipleship is concerned, and don't answer this, but I want to pose the question, as a, as a disciple of Christ, 
We are subject to Christ and our relationship with him. But Jesus told us to go and make disciples. So I would ask you, before I even ask you if you're discipling anybody, I would ask you who you're discipled by. You know, Paul had Timothy that he poured into. And Timothy had Paul who poured into him. And I believe as Christians, we all need a Paul. And we all need to be a Paul. You know, we need to be like Timothy and find somebody older than us in the faith and have them pour into us. Most of my friends, by the way, are older than me because I've seen that they have wisdom that I don't have. They, they're ahead of me on the, raising kids. They're ahead of me on going through experiences that I will experience. I don't surround myself typically with a ton of people that are my age level because they can't teach me anything. They're all basically, you know, they're doing what I do. They're making all the same dumb mistakes. We need to learn from those that have gone before us. Uh, but we also need somebody to pour into. And so just, just kind of a side note, but let me ask you, have you found somebody to disciple you? It might be an awkward moment where you say, hey, you're further along than me. Can you pour into my life? I need it. That takes humility, right? Because it says, I'm not good enough on my own and I don't know it all yet. We need to be teachable. We need one another. And so um, another note, is that uh, we're not just Christians because we wear the right clothes and say the right things. You know, I, I, Lucy and I were driving up here yesterday, and uh, she had on her jeans. She uh, had on this, like, pretty little, like, uh, plaid. Of course, I think it's pretty because it's plaid. It was purple plaid, and she looked so cute, and she goes, Dad, I got my boots on, I got my blue jeans on, and I got my plaid on. I'm a farmer. <laughs> And I was like, well, you're missing the buckle because you have to have a buckle to be a farmer. And she said, I'm a farmer. And I go, I'm, you're not a farmer. She goes, well, I'm wearing the right clothes. And I said, uh, no, that doesn't make you a farmer. What makes you a farmer? I said, when your brother puts on his Spider-Man jacket with a hood that pulls over his eyes and makes him look like Spider-Man, is he Spider-Man? She goes, well, no. And I go, so you wearing farmer clothes, does that make you a farmer? And she said, no. And I said, the same is true as for us as believers. We can wear all the right clothes, we can say all the right things, but when it comes down to it, if we willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, sin, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And so we need to not only be professors, but we need to be walkers, those who walk in the faith. Verse 32 says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. The just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then he ends with a, a note of encouragement. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. 
And so he talks about the beginning days of their salvation. These are Christians that have been saved. We've already talked about these are not people that are on the fence. They're, they believe in Christ. But I don't know about you guys, but as I've walked with Christ, there have been times where I, when I first got saved, you could not stop me from talking, and that got me into trouble. But then there was a time where I kind of cooled off a little bit, and I became a little bit more politically correct and you know, more accepting of other ways. It didn't mean I didn't believe it anymore, but the reality is the old days, Remember back to when you first got saved. Were there times where you were willing to do anything for Christ? Willing to endure suffering? I don't know about you guys, but for me, my personal testimony is it did not go well for me when I got saved. My family did not high-five me. They still don't, and it's 12 years later. They don't always get where I'm coming from. They don't understand why, I'll spend, why I spend more time with Christians than I do with my own family. They used to get bitter at me and angry. You love them more than you love us. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I just had more in common with them. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't skip out on Thanksgiving dinners. I don't forsake seeing them on weekends when we get something to do with them. But the reality is I just have more in common with believers. And Birds of a feather flock together. But... He says, in the old days, you were willing to endure suffering. You experienced reproach and tribulation in public. You became friends with those who were being treated the same way. There was fellowship and suffering. You had compassion on whoever the author is. We don't know, but he says, you had compassion on me. You visited me while I was in prison. You weren't ashamed of my chains. You joyfully accepted when people stole things from you. How many of us would be good at that? He's praising them because when they experienced reproach and suffering and when they were had their goods plundered from them, many of the times, by the way, that this was actually the government coming in and taking their stuff, and he says he praises them for doing, allowing it to happen, joyfully accepting it as the will of God for their life. How many of you would do great with that? But that was their testimony as believers. They were recognized as being Christians for the way that they suffered with grace. The way that they accepted being plundered, having all their stuff stolen with grace. And look at this. He says, why? He says, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Sorry. You did all of this and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods because you knew that you had a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. They accepted willfully that their stuff would be stolen and they, they accepted it with grace. I don't think they responded <laughs> right at first, but I think that they did it with grace knowing that they had an enduring possession, something that could not be taken from them in heaven. And so, I don't know where you stand with on all of this, but he, he asked them the question, what, what allowed them to do all this? They had a better and a lasting inheritance. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, he says, don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but store up treasures in heaven. 
Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know what we can store up in heaven. As much, the best I can tell from Scripture, the only thing I can store up in heaven is actually people, relationships. The kingdom of heaven is built on relationships. They needed a reminder that that, that, that was the case. They needed a reminder that their stuff or their, their house or their, you know, their current living situation wasn't where their hope should be. But notice this. He says, here's, here's, here's what they needed endurance for. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So this life is not the promise. You have endurance, need of endurance to get through this life. So then after you've done the will of God, lived according to his purpose, then you can receive the promise that he gave us. So the promise is taken by faith. And that's what chapter 11 is going to be about. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. The elders were the Old Testament saints. But notice what he says in verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. That word perdition, where else do we see it in the New Testament? It's a word described, used to describe Judas Iscariot, those who draw back. See, Judas was someone who was called by Jesus himself. And what did Jesus say? He said, come and follow me. And Judas said, okay. But what we find out is, is that story plays out that everyone responded, of the, at least of the 12, responded favorably. I will come and follow you. Many of them professed, hey, I've given up all to follow you. And so, but what we find out about Judas is that his motive wasn't to do the will of God. It was actually to get something from God that he thought he was going to get. He had expectations, which led to waste. He was following Jesus for three years, and it was a waste spiritually for him because his desire was to benefit financially, in position, and in power. And we know that because when Jesus was getting ready to be crucified and he wasn't getting out of Jesus what he thought that he had coming to him, he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. He was more interested in what this life could give him than in what he could receive eternally. And so I believe that this is the, the, the hinge pin. I believe that this is the spot that we find ourselves in. Are we willing to accept the will of God or are we looking for something he didn't offer us? And if we're looking for something he didn't offer us, what we're going to do is we're going to sin willfully. We're going to despise God's instruction, his direction. <clears throat> but if we recognize that all this world has to give us, it won't make us happy and won't eternally do anything for us, we'll be willing to forsake that so that we can gain the promise. And so, our motives have to do with everything. So as we get ready to take communion this morning, I want you to spend time with the Lord and just pray about that. Lord, sort through my motives. Sort through why I'm following you or if I'm following you. And, and help me in the ways that I'm maybe willfully sinning against you to change. Break my heart over what breaks yours. Break your, my heart over the sin that I've concealed and given an, an excuse for and purify my life so that I can have heavenly goals 
to do the will of God and to receive the promise. And as we go into chapter 11 next week, we're going to look at these stories of faith and find out that every one of these examples are going to be human beings that were imperfect, going to focus on all of the, the silver and gold and none of the wood, hay, and stubble. And I believe that that's what it's going to look like in heaven. God's trophy room is going to be full of us, and it's not going to be a list of all the stuff we did wrong. It's going to be a list of all the stuff we did right. And then everybody that knows us is going to giggle and have joy over the fact that we know the full story. That that wasn't the full story, and God's grace covers a multitude of sins. And so spend some time with him this morning while we take communion and enjoy that thing called grace that is amazing.